Today's readings are Isaiah chapter 64 verses 1 through 9 and Mark chapter 13 verses 32 through 37. They can be found on pages 691 and 938 of the Bibles next to your seats as well as on the screen. This is God's word. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you. As when fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil, come down to make your name known to your enemies and cause the nations to quake before you. For when you did awesome things that we did not expect, you came down and the mountains trembled before you. Since ancient times, no one has heard, no, one has, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. You come to the help of those who gladly do right, who remember your ways. But when we continued to sin against them, you were angry. How then can we be saved? All of us have become unclean, like one, all of us have become like one who's unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. No one calls on your name or strives to lay hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have given us over to our sins. Yet you, Lord, are our Father. We are the clay. You are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Do not be angry beyond measure, Lord. Do not remember our sins forever. Oh, look on us, we pray, for we are all your people. And Mark 13, 32 through 37 But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Be alert. You do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each one with an assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. The word of the Lord. And thank you, pray with me. Our gracious God, as we come to sit in this place, you come from different stories and different places. Many of us have had more of a holiday type of week or weekend. And in experiences that we've had and people that we've seen might tap into a long story of our life, who we are, um, what has made us who we are, for better or for worse. And as we come into this space, we're um, drawing our attention to you, and that might be something that similarly taps into a long journey of questions about who we are. Who are you? Who, who are we when we come before you, for better or for worse? And quite frankly, the truth is, we're more of a mess than we care to admit to each other. And uh, the story, unbelievably, the story of Scripture keeps telling us that you keep committing and drawing closer us, despite the mess. And so even though we're more of a mess than we care to admit, we're more loved and accepted in Christ Jesus than we ever imagined, than we ever dreamed. 
And so we, we sit here now with that opportunity and possibility of grace, your grace standing before us. A God who sees us in all of our fragility and our mess and also all of the beauty that you intended by creating us. And by entering and coming into our lives, you hope and you plan to rebuild and renew and transform. Would you do that in some small pieces this morning for each of us and for us as a church? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <laughs> in the fourth grade in California, you, uh, at least in the school my children go to, uh, you study California history and you study the missions and uh, you also in this will have a mission project. And so, you know, what I remember is uh, growing up in California is the Sugar Cube mission, you know, Sugar Cubes all moving together. I haven't seen any kids do that um, in my children's classes. We went to go visit this mission that my son has chosen um, on Monday, and we were in for a couple of surprises, kind of downer kind of surprises. Uh, first of all, we realized that maybe we should have researched, done a little bit of the research on the front end before showing up and visiting a mission, you know, the, the gift shop that where you can kind of find out more about the mission and mission history. It was closed on Mondays and Tuesdays, um, contrary to the website. Um, but then the other thing that was kind of funny is we started to read the signs and realized that there is absolutely no shred of anything even close to the original mission still on the site. Um, and the mission that, we're, that we have is San Rafael. And so there's a map there's a, that you can see and that we took a picture of, and you can see it shows the structures that are all there. There's a Catholic, there's kind of a big Catholic church, there's an older chapel with a gift shop, there's a school on this property. And then those are all these kind of dark lines on the map, and then there's like a, a dot, like a dotted line that shows the outline of what they think was where the original mission was. And it was just a little bit of a letdown because of that experience of entering into buildings and onto ground that, that you kind of are learning about the history, and you're also seeing it, you're saying they were here, and this is, this is how they used this space. And we've had that experience in other places, and so it was kind of a letdown. So then on the ride home, we were reading through the packet that was there, and there was a chapel that we could go in, and it was a chapel that was at least somewhat uh, made into mission style. So we get through that and look at that and get the packet that they handed out for fourth graders. We were reading, I was reading about how it came to be, you know, not there anymore. And I was struck with the vivid language that this um, history lesson on the San Rafael mission used. When it said, in uh, by 1955, the old mission adobe building was in ruins. During the eight did I say 1955? I said 1855. During the 1860s, the once flourishing mission orchards were used as camping grounds for squatters and derelicts. By 1870, the last mounds of melted adobe were cleared away. Isn't that just sort of, ugh, sort of depressing, vivid language? of the deterioration and really abandonment of a historic building. And so we're entering in this week to Advent, and I'm thinking about this passage, Isaiah 64, and the way that it sort of lifts up a prayer of abandonment. And, um, and as I think about that, 
I think about this vivid language and how it sort of can be overlaid for our experience of our world today. Last mounds of melted adobe. Depending on where you look on any given day or any given week, in your lives or in the world at large, you open up the newspaper, where do you rest your eyes? Where does your glance remain and linger? And depending on where it does, it might feel just as depressing and discouraging and broken as that history lesson on the San Rafael mission. Your eyes maybe rest on the depression or mental illness that you struggle with or someone you know. Maybe your eyes rest on the newspaper articles and all the TV reports and internet feeds about the drama that's been playing out in Missouri and Ferguson and throughout the country related to race and, and our nation's sensibilities about race. Maybe your, um, your emotions rest on a, a great loss and the sort of senselessness and randomness that death can have in our world today. Maybe your eyes rest on something far, far away like, you know, the Islamic State and news reports from the other side of the world, or maybe they rest on something very close to home, like, a, like just a really bad break in your work or your employment situation or your family situation, maybe a loss, like a miscarriage. Our world is broken. The last mounds of melted adobe. Our, our lives feel unfixed. Our world has unsolved problems all around. There's aching sorrow. There's a messed up world. And in the end, I think if you're looking at our world through eyes of faith, and you're hoping or trusting there's a God, you have to sometimes say, it looks like our world is under-influenced by God's presence. I mean, sometimes you have to start to think about that. Doesn't it, shouldn't I feel closer to God? And that's just on a personal level. Your journey feels broke. Your journey between you and God feels broken. It feels like there's, there's not enough connection. There's not enough faith. There's not enough um, vitality or peace. You feel unsettled. There's always that angst. There's always that chasing. There's always that question. Am I okay with God? Is God okay with me? Even on a very personal level, we feel broken and things feel very unsolved. C.S. Lewis says that when the Bible uh, reveals that our lifelong nostalgia, our longing to be reunited with something in the universe from which we now feel cut off, to be on the inside of some door which we have always seen from the outside, is no mere neurotic fantasy, but the truest index of our true situation. That longing, is it possible, and this is where Advent brings you, this is where Advent draws your attention, is it possible that that longing inside of you to be not only closer to God, but for our world to be a, a little more uh, reflective of God's presence, is it possible that that longing is actually the truest barometer? for who you are and for how the world's supposed to be? Is that maybe that longing something to lean into and to, to grab hold of and to say, yes, I'm not going to give up. I'm not, I'm not crazy to long for God to be more present 
in this world, in my life. And so that's, that's what Isaiah really, already in, in the first few verses of Isaiah chapter 64, that's what's happening as the call is for, for God to come down, break open the heavens and arrive, just show up. And in Advent, we lean into that truth. We lean into that theme. We sing songs like the one we sang this morning. Emmanuel. Oh, come on, come Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. That's a, that's a call for presence. That's a call for no more abandonment, no more of distance, God. Emmanuel, come, be with us. And the lyrics are not, they're not, um, you know, they're, they're not avoiding the reality we live in. Some of the lyrics from the song, let me just read a few lines. Oh, come, come Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. Think about those words, what that means. This slavery. Come and help and end this. That mourns in lowly exile here until the Son of God appears. Another line in one of the verses says, disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadows put to flight. And then that verse says, oh, bid our sad divisions cease. A lot of sad divisions in the paper when you open it up in the morning. Oh, bid our sad divisions cease and be yourself the king of peace. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel, rejoice shall come to you, O Israel. And I was thinking as we sang that this morning that we sing, it's, it's set to a minor tune. If you're a musician, that means something. But to all of us, it means the mood, the, the way that song feels as you sing it. It's, it's not a happy, happy melody. It's, it's, it's rich and it's filled with sadness and reflective of the raw nature of life in our world. When you bring your own raw stuff this morning and you try to enter into this season. And so, you know, as, as we enter into Psalm 64, um, it, is, it has that raw deep, gloomy truth. It is a lament. And in the Bible, a lament can get a little messy and can have rough edges, can feel a little bit irreverent at times. This is a lament of the apparent absence of God. And yet, like that song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, there's a root that we'll see comes out God with us. God is with us. That's his promise. That was a promise back in the day to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That was his promise to ancient Israel. I will be your God. I will be with you. That's his promise. Let me just uh, do really three quick observations. Actually, be really short. Three quick observations about this prayer, this psalm of Advent that fits us into it. Isaiah 64. And they go like this. There's a legitimate accusing involved here. There's an illegitimate blaming in this prayer, and there's a transformational trusting. A legitimate accusing, illegitimate blaming, and a transformational trusting. First of all, the, the legitimate accusing is that God is less present than he is capable of being. That, there's a lot of legitimacy to that accusation, it, whether it's true or not. 
to our eyes, quite frankly, often, God seems like he could be more present. And so what the psalm does is, by, by accusing, so you see it in verses 1 through 3, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you, as when fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil. Come down and make your name known to your enemies and cause the nations to quake before you. For when you did awesome things that we did not expect, you came down and the mountains trembled before you. So this is, this is saying, that, I mean, it's, it's not in super accusatory language, but that there's an accusation, an implicit accusation. You are not as present as you have been at other times and as you claim to be. Get active, you know, like that fire, making water boil. Do something. Get involved. Let's go, God. There's something very legitimate if you read throughout the Bible, especially if you camp out in the book of Psalms, which is a great place to develop your faith on a daily basis. You'll find prayers over and over that do the same thing. It's a legitimate kind of accusing. It's, it's calling God, um, and even if it's more for us than for Him, because the truth is what we learn is He actually is present. But there's a, there's a need and a freedom in the Bible to, to cry out and to say, you're not, you don't seem to be as present as I think you should be. And as you claim you, you want to be, you know, I will be your God. I will be with you. He says that over and over to those early patriarchs of Abraham and to Israel. I will be with you. I will be with you. And so this is a prayer that pushes that back. We need to recite God's own promises back to Him. And then secondly, there's illegitimate blaming. There's some illegitimate blaming that goes on in this, uh, this Advent-type prayer. You do see it in verse 7, when the prayer says, No one calls on your name or strives to lay hold of you. It sounds kind of like a confession. But then see how it turns with the second part? For you have hidden your face from us and have given us over to our sins. I feel a little bit like blaming God for, for their sins. Feel a little bit like I'm in this mess because you could have been more present and you weren't. Um, there's actually a place where it's even more vivid, but translators have not found, um, in a sense, most translators have not chosen to translate verse 5, and especially the second half of it, in the way that is most um, obvious to the Hebrew reading. So when it says, But when we continue to sin against them, you were angry. Most commentators say um, the Hebrew there actually says, because you were angry, we continue to sin. Very vivid blame. It's very much, it crosses right over. Everybody says it's very clear in the Hebrew. Look, this is someone saying, hey, we're sinning because you're absent. We're sinning because you abandoned us. What choice do we have? And you can imagine, if that is your practice in prayer, how unhealthy of a relationship uh, that would develop into. And so and, and we know, you know kind of from the, from the nature of Scripture and the way Scripture teaches us to, prayer and to pray and what Scripture says about God, that this is an illegitimate prayer, although it's part of the messiness of lament and the messiness of wanting our world to be better. And what I'd like to point out in it is actually, even though that's a, an illegitimate way and a pretty unhealthy way for your prayer life to be all the time, <laughs> There's something pretty amazing that that prayer, that blame, is rooted in. It's rooted into an old 
really a, a theological principle that's been debated and bantied, bantied around for a long time called the sovereignty of God. In other words, God is bullish. If you read the Bible, you see he's bullish to be very involved and very influential in bringing us back to him and in the activities of this world. And he tends to be a lot more involved, the Bible exhibits, than what we give him credit for and then what we tend to think he is. And so that the um, so that in the New Testament that comes out with the onus, only by grace you have been saved. Through faith, not of yourself. It's a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Even you know, when we do turn and receive God's grace, it's only because, in a sense, He's coming out and grabbing hold of us and getting our attention enough and bringing us home. So that that that's a very big God. And when you get that kind of a huge, big God, and you say, God is so active, even for us as broken people to turn to Him, we need help from Him to turn to Him. That's how bad off we are. And then you can see how if you're in that kind of place, in order to come to you, I need your help anyway. You can take that one little step further and say, it's your fault that I haven't turned to you. Right? Because you haven't grabbed me yet. You haven't done enough to turn me away from this sin or from this ignorance of you and the fact that I'm not pursuing you. So, on the one hand, it goes right over that edge and yet it's it's right there in that God is big in that kind of irreverent prayer. God is very big. And then lastly, I just want to point out the transformational trusting. Transformational trusting. A prayer that seeks and longs for God to be real and present. Where does it land? Where does it end up? What does it end in the end? What does it get rooted in? A transformational kind of trusting that comes in an image in this prayer in verse 8. Yet you, Lord, are our Father. We talked several weeks ago about what that means. But then look at the second part. We are the clay. You are the potter. And we are all the work of your hand. God is the potter. This is a transformational kind of trust. And it's, it's where the, you realize that this prayer, although it's been kind of scattered and a little bit irreverent here and there, it comes back and there's a determination to trust that God is involved and present and actually never has abandoned us or this world. That's where this prayer decides to camp out. When we were um, taking our sabbatical this past summer and our family disconnected from the church calendar. We went on the road and we went to Albuquerque, New Mexico, and there were some sites that we wanted to see. Um, there, was a, there was actually a Breaking Bad driving tour. Um, and Breaking Bad, you know, it's this TV show. I see some of you know what it is. Some of you look clueless, so you're probably better off that you didn't waste all that time watching that show. But it's a wonderful television show and in many ways. And we went to Albuquerque and we... Um, we couldn't help it, but we had to look up online and find some of the places where they filmed this and see the houses. Uh, you know, see Walter White's house, see Jesse's house, see these different, see that, um, the car wash. Um, so, so we did this tour, but you know, just because we, we wanted to be able to live with ourselves, we also then went to something cultural and historical afterwards. We went to the a cultural center for, um, Pep, uh, let me see if I can say it right, um, the Pueblo communities of of the desert around them. 
And this is all very new to me in terms of what Pueblos were, and I'll let you do the Googling after the service and find out more about it. But basically, there's these, these native villages that are, that are still functioning, um, and that have been kind of untouched in many ways, or only lightly touched by the influence of, and I didn't, I didn't even know. This was, this was still existing, these communities that still operate in many ways, like they operated for, for thousands of years in that region. Um, and what we did is, so we went to this cultural museum, and we got there about a half hour before closing time, and there, there was this huge building with multiple rooms and different places you could go, and there's artwork everywhere and things to see, and we were, the, the six of us were the only people there the whole place. It was just like a middle of the week kind of deal. No one was there. We, we just went through and never ran into a single soul the whole time going through all these different rooms. And we eventually found ourselves in a room where there was a video playing. And it was the floor where they discussed the artwork and the pottery of the Pueblo people. And a video came on. And we're going to, I'm going to cue you down. I'm pulling that up. Because it helps me connect with what it means that God is our This is a video that we're only going to see a minute or two here without sound of someone doing the ancient work of making an incredibly beautiful pot and what's involved in it. What does it mean in a world where we say, God, where are you? What does it mean to anchor ourselves in an image of God? We are the clay. God is the pot. As you watch, you see, even looking at her face, you see the intensity of the focus. Her eyes seem to never leave the work of her hands. You are the potter. We are the clay. I notice the patience patience in the potter. Not only in this one step that we're looking at, but the bigger video shows her going out into the desert to gather in one place the adobe to use to make this clay pot, and then going to another place to grab the sand, the special blue sand to mix with it. Then there's a the whole process of mixing the dry ingredients. Then there's the adding water. Then there's the kneading it like you might with pizza dough, you know, it's like this big long process of getting the consistency exactly right, and then we get to this step. All of that has already happened, and yet look at how slow and painstaking this work is. You are the potter, I am the clay. Right there she has the exact right tool, and here comes another one, to shape it, to change the material, to bend it from its misshapen, disformed nature. That's like us. That's like our world. That other tool was scraping away the excess. We say when God does that in our lives, No! I think I need that. Scraping away. Realizing that the mixture for this particular step is not exactly right, so bringing in some more moisture and starting to shape the top. It's getting closer to finish now. But this is patient work. This takes a long time. 
Notice this, the potter gets her hands up in the mess and all dirty, working closely, never letting go. Those hands are constantly on the material. Constantly. You are the potter. We are the clay. You can turn that off. <laughs> you can see my favorites list uh, coming up next. I was laughing, I was laughing about that this morning, actually, with my wife. Uh, let's, let's pray as we pray. Our gracious God, you are the potter and you are the clay. Truth is, we um, look around and often we see broken, dry, cracked shards. And we start to doubt whether your hands are still connected to this work, the work of our lives, the work of our world. But we anchor ourselves stubbornly today that you are like a father. You've never left. You've got this whole world in your hands. And we move forward, determined to trust that, determined to work out the implications, determined to live by faith. Until you come again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.